Encyclical Letter Rerum Novarum on Capital and Labor by Pope Leo XIII, Part 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. There is another and deeper consideration which must not be lost sight of. As regards the state, the interests of all, whether high or low, are equal. The poor are members of the national community equally with the rich. They are real component living members, which constitute, through the family, the living body, and it need hardly be said that they are in every state very largely in the majority. It would be irrational to neglect one portion of the citizens in favor another, and therefore the public administration must duly and solicitously provide for the welfare and the comfort of the working classes. Otherwise that law of justice will be violated which ordains that each man shall have his due. To cite the wise words of St. Thomas of Aquin, quote, As the part and the whole are in a certain sense identical, the part may in some sense claim what belongs to the whole. End quote. Among the many engraved duties of rulers who would do their best for the people, the first and chief is to act with strict justice. With that justice which is called by the schoolmen distributive, towards each and every class alike. But although all citizens, without exception, can and ought to contribute to that common good in which individuals share so advantageously to themselves, yet it should not be supposed that all can contribute in the like way and to the same extent. No matter what changes may occur in forms of government, there will ever be differences and inequalities of condition in the state. Society cannot exist or be conceived of without them. Some there must be who devote themselves to the work of the commonwealth, who make the laws or administer justice, or whose advice and authority govern the nation in times of peace and defend it in war. Such men clearly occupy the foremost place in the state, and should be held in highest estimation, for their work concerns most nearly and effectively the general interests of the community. Those who labor at a trade or calling do not promote the general welfare in such measure as this, but they benefit the nation, if less directly, in a most important manner. Still, we have insisted that, since the end of society is to make men better, the chief good that society can possess is virtue. Nevertheless, in all well-constituted states, it is in no wise a matter of small moment to provide those bodily and external commodities the use of which is necessary to virtuous action. And in order to provide such material well-being, the labor of the poor, the exercise of their skill, and the employment of their strength, in the culture of the land and in the workshops of trade, is of great account and quite indispensable. Indeed, their cooperation is in this respect so important that it may be truly said that it is only by the labor of workingmen that states grow rich, Justice, therefore, demands that the interests of the poorer classes should be carefully watched over by the administration, so that they who contribute so largely to the advantage of the community may themselves share in the benefits which they create, that being housed, clothed, and enabled to sustain life, they may find their existence less hard and more endurable. It follows that whatever shall appear to prove conducive to the well-being of those who work should obtain favorable consideration. Let it not be feared that solicitude of this kind will be harmful to any interest. On the contrary, it will be to the advantage of all, 
for it cannot but be good for the commonwealth to shield from misery those on whom it so largely depends we have said that the state must not absorb the individual or the family both should be allowed free and untrammeled action so far as is consistent with the common good and the interests of others rulers should nevertheless anxiously safeguard the community and all its members the community because the conservation thereof is so emphatically the business of the supreme power that the safety of the commonwealth is not only the first law but it is a government's whole reason of existence and the members because both philosophy and the gospel concur in laying down that the object of the government of the state should be not the advantage of the ruler but the benefit of those over whom he is placed the gift of authority derives from god and is as it were a participation in the highest of all sovereignties and should be exercised as the power of god is exercised with a fatherly solicitude which not only guides the whole but reaches also to details whenever the general interest or any particular class suffers or is threatened with mischief which can in no other way be met or prevented the public authority must step in to deal with it now it interests the public as well as the individual that peace and good order should be maintained that family life should be carried on in accordance with god's laws and those of nature that religion should be reverenced and obeyed that a high standard of morality should prevail both in public and private life that the sanctity of justice should be respected and that no one should injure another with impunity that the members of the commonwealth should grow up to man's estate strong and robust and capable if need be of guarding and defending their country if by a strike or other combination of workmen there should be imminent danger of disturbance to the public peace or if circumstances were such as that among the laboring population the ties of family life were relaxed if religion were found to suffer through the operatives not having time and opportunity afforded them to practice its duties if in workshops and factories there were danger to morals through the mixing of the sexes or from other harmful occasions of evil or if employers laid burdens upon their workmen which were unjust or degraded them with conditions repugnant to their dignity as human beings finally if health were endangered by excessive labor or by work unsuited to sex or age in such cases there can be no question but that within certain limits it would be right to invoke the aid and authority of the law the limits must be determined by the nature of the occasion which calls for the law's interference the principle being that the law must not undertake more nor proceed further than is required for the remedy of the evil or the removal of the mischief rights must be religiously respected wherever they exist and it is the duty of the public authority to prevent and to punish injury and to protect every one in the possession of his own still when there is a question of defending the rights of individuals the poor and helpless have a claim to a special consideration the richer class have many ways of shielding themselves and stand less in need of help from the state whereas those who are badly off have no resources of their own to fall back upon and must chiefly depend upon the assistance of the state and it is for this reason that wage earners who are undoubtedly among the weak and necessitous should be specially cared for and protected by the government here however it is expedient to bring under special notice certain matters of moment 
It should ever be borne in mind that the chief thing to be realized is the safeguarding of private property by legal enactment and public policy. Most of all, it is essential, amid such a fever of excitement, to keep the multitude within the line of duty. For if all may justly strive to better their condition, neither justice nor the common good allows any individual to seize upon that which belongs to another, or, under the futile and shallow pretext of equality, to lay violent hands on other people's possessions. Most true it is that by far the larger part of the workers prefer to better themselves by honest labor, rather than by doing any wrong to others. But there are not a few who are imbued with evil principles and eager for revolutionary change, whose main purpose is to stir up tumult and bring about measures of violence. The authority of the state should intervene to put restraint upon such firebrands, to save the working classes from their seditious arts, and protect lawful owners from spoliation. When working men have recourse to a strike, it is frequently because the hours of labor are too long, or the work too hard, or because they consider their wages insufficient. The grave inconvenience of this not uncommon occurrence should be obviated by public remedial measures, for such paralyzing of labor not only affects the masters and their workpeople alike, but is extremely injurious to trade and to the general interests of the public. Moreover, on such occasions, violence and disorder are generally not far distant, and thus it frequently happens that the public peace is imperiled. The laws should forestall and prevent such troubles from arising. They should lend their influence and authority to the removal in good time of the causes which lead to conflicts between employers and employed. But if owners of property should be made secure, the working man, in like manner, has property and belongings in respect to which he should be protected, and foremost of all, his soul and mind. Life on earth, however good and desirable in itself, is not the final purpose for which man is created. It is only the way and the means to that attainment of truth and that practice of goodness in which the full life of the soul consists. It is the soul which is made after the image and likeness of God. It is in the soul that the sovereignty resides in virtue, whereof man is commanded to rule the creatures below him and to use all the earth and the ocean for his profit and advantage. Fill the earth and subdue it, and rule over the fishes of the sea, and the fowls of the air, and all living creatures which move upon the earth. In this respect all men are equal. There is no difference between rich and poor, master and servant, ruler and ruled, for the same is lord over all. No man may with impunity outrage that human dignity which God himself treats with reverence, nor stand in the way of that higher life which is the preparation for the eternal life of heaven. Nay, more, no man has in this matter power over himself to consent to any treatment which is calculated to defeat the end and purpose of his being is beyond his right. He cannot give up his soul to servitude, for it is not man's own rights which are here in question, but the rights of God, the most sacred and inviolable of rights. From this follows the obligation of the cessation from work and labor on Sundays and certain holy days. The rest from labor is not to be understood as mere giving way to idleness, much less must it be an occasion for spending money and for vicious indulgence as many would have it to be. But it should be rest from labor, hallowed by religion. 
rest, that is, combined with religious observances, disposes man to forget for a while the business of his everyday life, to turn his thoughts to things heavenly, and to the worship which he so strictly owes to the eternal Godhead. It is this, above all, which is the reason and motive of Sunday rest, a rest sanctioned by God's great law of the ancient covenant. Remember thou, keep holy the Sabbath day. And taught to the world by his own mysterious, quote, rest, end quote, after the creation of man, he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done. If we turn now to things external and corporal, the first concern of all is to save the poor workers from the cruelty of greedy speculators who use human beings as mere instruments of money-making. It is neither just nor human so to grind men down with excessive labor as to stupefy their minds and wear out their bodies. Man's powers, like his general nature, are limited, and beyond these limits he cannot go. His strength is developed and increased by use and exercise, but only on condition of due intermission and proper rest. Daily labor, therefore, should be so regulated as not to be protracted over longer hours than strength admits. How many and how long the intervals of rest should be must depend on the nature of the work, on circumstances of time and place, and on the health and strength of the workmen. Those who work in mines and quarries and extract coal, stone, and metals from the bowels of the earth should have shorter hours in proportion as their labor is more severe and trying to health. Then again, the season of the year should be taken into account, for not infrequently a kind of labor is easy at one time, which at another is intolerable or exceedingly difficult. Finally, work which is quite suitable for a strong man cannot reasonably be required from a woman or a child, and, in regard to children, Great care should be taken not to place them in workshops and factories until their bodies and minds are sufficiently developed. For just as very rough weather destroys the buds of spring, so does too early an experience of life's hard toil blight the young promise of a child's faculties and render any true education impossible. Women, again, are not suited for certain occupations. A woman is by nature fitted for homework and it is that which is best adapted at once to preserve her modesty and to promote the good bringing up of children and the well-being of the family. As a general principle, it may be laid down that a workman ought to have leisure and rest proportionate to the wear and tear of his strength, for waste of strength must be repaired by cessation from hard work. In all agreements between masters and workpeople, there is always the condition expressed or understood that there should be allowed proper rest for soul and body. To agree in any other sense would be against what is right and just, for it can never be just or right to require on the one side, or to promise on the other, the giving up of those duties which a man owes to his God and to himself. We now approach a subject of great and urgent importance, and one in respect of which, if extremes are to be avoided, right notions are absolutely necessary. Wages, as we are told, are regulated by free consent, and therefore the employer, when he pays what was agreed upon, has done his part and seemingly is not called upon to do anything beyond. The only way, it is said, in which injustice might occur would be if the master refused to pay the whole of the wages, or if the workman should not complete the work undertaken. In such cases the state should intervene to see that each obtains his due, but not under any other circumstances. 
This mode of reasoning is, to a fair-minded man, by no means convincing, for there are important considerations which it leaves out of account altogether. To labor is to exert oneself for the sake of procuring what is necessary for the purposes of life, and chief of all for self-preservation. In the sweat of thy brow thou shalt eat thy bread. Hence a man's labor bears two notes or characters. First of all, it is personal, inasmuch as the exertion of individual strength belongs to the individual who puts it forth, employing such strength to procure that personal advantage on account of which it was bestowed. Secondly, man's labor is necessary, for without the result of labor a man cannot live, and self-preservation is a law of nature which it is wrong to disobey. Now, were we to consider labor so far as it is personal merely, doubtless it would be within the workman's right to accept any rate of wages whatsoever. For in the same way as he is free to work or not, so is he free to accept a small remuneration or even none at all. But this is a mere abstract supposition. The labor of the working man is not only his personal attribute, but it is necessary. And this makes all the difference. The preservation of life is the bounden duty of one and all, and to be wanting therein is a crime. It follows that each one has a right to procure what is required in order to live, and the poor man can procure it in no other way than through work and wages. Let it be then taken for granted that workmen and employers should, as a rule, make free agreements, and in particular should agree freely as to the wages. Nevertheless, there underlies a dictate of natural justice more imperious and ancient than any bargain between man and man, namely that remuneration ought to be sufficient to support a frugal and well-behaved wage earner. If through necessity or fear of a worse evil the workmen accept harder conditions because an employer or contractor will afford him no better, he is made the victim of force and injustice. In these and similar questions, however, such as, for example, the hours of labor in different trades, the sanitary precautions to be observed in factories and workshops, etc. In order to supersede undue interference on the part of the state, especially as circumstances, times, and localities differ so widely, it is advisable that recourse be had to societies or boards, such as we shall mention presently, or to some other mode of safeguarding the interests of the wage earners, the state being appealed to, should circumstances require, for its sanction and protection. If a workman's wages be sufficient to enable him to maintain himself, his wife, and his children in reasonable comfort, he will not find it difficult, if he be a sensible man, to study economy, and he will not fail, by cutting down expenses, to put by some little savings and thus secure a small income. Nature and reason alike would urge him to do this. We have seen that this great labor question cannot be solved save by assuming as a principle that private ownership must be held sacred and inviolable. The law, therefore, should favor ownership, and its policy should be to induce as many as possible of the humbler class to become owners. Many excellent results will follow from this, and first of all, property will certainly become more equitably divided. For the result of civil change and revolution has been to divide society into two widely differing castes. On the one side there is the party which holds power because it holds wealth, 
which has in its grasp the whole of labor and trade, which manipulates for its own benefit and its own purposes all the sources of supply, and which is even represented in the councils of the state itself. On the other side there is the needy and powerless multitude, broken down and suffering, and ever ready for disturbance. If working people can be encouraged to look forward to obtaining a share in the land, the consequence will be that the gulf between vast wealth and sheer poverty will be bridged over, and the respective classes will be brought nearer to one another. A further consequence will result in the greater abundance of the fruits of the earth. Men always work harder and more readily when they work on that which belongs to them. Nay, they learn to love the very soil that yields, in response to the labor of their hands, not only food to eat, but an abundance of good things for themselves and those that are dear to them. That such a spirit of willing labor would add to the produce of the earth and to the wealth of the community is self-evident. And a third advantage would spring from this. Men would cling to the country in which they were born, for no one would exchange his country for a foreign land if his own afforded him the means of living a decent and happy life. These three important benefits, however, can be reckoned on only provided that a man's means be not drained and exhausted by excessive taxation. The right to possess private property is derived from nature, not from man, and the state has the right to control its use in the interests of the public good alone, but by no means to absorb it altogether. The state would therefore be unjust and cruel if under the name of taxation it were to deprive the private owner of more than is fitting. In the last place, employers and workmen may of themselves effect much in the matter we are treating, by means of such associations and organizations as afford opportune aid to those who are in distress, and which draw the two classes more closely together. Among these may be enumerated societies for mutual help, various benevolent foundations established by private persons to provide for the workman, and for his widow or his orphans in case of sudden calamity, in sickness, and in the event of death, and what are called, quote, patronages, end quote, or institutions for the care of boys and girls, for young people, as well as homes for the aged. The most important of all are working men's unions, for these virtually include all the rest, History attests what excellent results were brought about by the artificers' guilds of olden times. They were the means of affording not only many advantages to the workmen, but in no small degree of promoting the advancement of art, as numerous monuments remain to bear witness. Such unions should be suited to the requirements of this our age, an age of wider education, of different habits, and of far more numerous requirements in daily life. It is gratifying to know that there are actually in existence not a few associations of this nature, consisting either of workmen alone or of workmen and employers together, but it were greatly to be desired that they should become more numerous and more efficient. We have spoken of them more than once, yet it will be well to explain here how notably they are needed to show that they exist of their own right and what should be their organization and their mode of action. The consciousness of his own weakness urges man to call in aid from without. We read in the pages of the Holy Writ, It is better that two should be together than one, for they have the advantage of their society. If one fall, he shall be supported by the other. Woe to him that is alone, for when he falleth, he hath none to lift him up. 
and further, A brother that is helped by his brother is like a strong city. It is this natural impulse which binds men together in civil society, and it is likewise this which leads them to join together in associations of citizen with citizen, associations which, it is true, cannot be called societies in the full sense of the word, but which, notwithstanding, are societies. These lesser societies and the society which constitutes the state differ in many respects because their immediate purpose and aim is different. Civil society exists for the common good and hence is concerned with the interests of all in general, albeit with individual interests also in their due place and degree. It is therefore called public society because by its agency, as St. Thomas of Aquin says, quote, Men establish relations in common with one another in the setting up of a commonwealth. End quote. But societies which are formed in the bosom of the state are styled private, and rightly so, since their immediate purpose is the private advantage of the associates. Quote, now a private society, says St. Thomas again, is one which is formed for the purpose of carrying out private objects, as when two or three enter into partnership with the view of trading in common. End quote. Private societies, then, although they exist within the state and are severally part of the state, cannot nevertheless be absolutely, and as such, prohibited by the state. For to enter into a, quote, society, end quote, of this kind is the natural right of man, and the state is bound to protect natural rights, not to destroy them. And if it forbid its citizens to form associations, it contradicts the very principle of its own existence, for both they and it exist in virtue of the like principle, namely, the natural tendency of man to dwell in society. There are occasions, doubtless, when it is fitting that the law should intervene to prevent association, as when men join together for purposes which are evidently bad, unlawful, or dangerous to the state. In such cases, public authority may justly forbid the formation of associations and may dissolve them if they already exist. But every precaution should be taken not to violate the rights of individuals and not to impose unreasonable regulations under pretense of public benefit. For laws only bind when they are in accordance with right reason and hence with the eternal law of God. And here we are reminded of the confraternities, societies, and religious orders which have arisen by the Church's authority and the piety of Christian men. The annals of every nation down to our own days bear witness to what they have accomplished for the human race. It is indisputable that on grounds of reason alone, such associations, being perfectly blameless in their objects, possess the sanction of the law of nature. In their religious aspect, they claim rightly to be responsible to the church alone. The rulers of the state accordingly have no rights over them, nor can they claim any share in their control. On the contrary, it is the duty of the state to respect and cherish them, and, if need be, to defend them from attack. It is notorious that a very different course has been followed, more especially in our own times. In many places, the state authorities have laid violent hands on these communities and committed manifold injustice against them. It has placed them under control of the civil law, taken away their rights as corporate bodies, and despoiled them of their property. In such property the Church had her rights, 
Each member of the body had his or her rights, and there were also the rights of those who had founded or endowed these communities for a definite purpose, and, furthermore, of those for whose benefit and assistance they had their being. Therefore we cannot refrain from complaining of such spoliation as unjust and fraught with evil results, and with all the more reason do we complain because, at the very time when the law proclaims that association is free to all, we see that Catholic societies, however peaceful and useful, are hampered in every way, whereas the utmost liberty is conceded to individuals whose purposes are at once hurtful to religion and dangerous to the state. Associations of every kind, and especially those of working men, are now far more common than heretofore. As regards many of these, there is no need at present to inquire whence they spring, what are their objects, or what the means they employ. There is a good deal of evidence, however, which goes to prove that many of these societies are in the hands of secret leaders and are managed on principles ill-according with Christianity and the public well-being, and that they do their utmost to get within their grasp the whole field of labor and force working men either to join them or to starve. Under these circumstances, Christian working men must do one of two things, either join associations in which their religion will be exposed to peril, or form associations among themselves, unite their forces, and shake off courageously the yoke of so unrighteous and intolerable an oppression. No one who does not wish to expose man's chief good to extreme risk will for a moment hesitate to say that the second alternative should by all means be adopted. Those Catholics are worthy of all praise, and they are not a few, who, understanding what the times require, have striven by various undertakings and endeavors to better the condition of the working class without any sacrifice of principle being involved. They have taken up the cause of the working man and have spared no efforts to better the condition both of families and individuals, to infuse a spirit of equity into the mutual relations of employers and employed, to keep before the eyes of both classes the precepts of duty and the laws of the gospel, that gospel which, by inculcating self-restraint, keeps men within the bounds of moderation and tends to establish harmony among the divergent interests and the various classes which compose the state. It is with such ends in view that we see men of eminence meeting together for discussion, for the promotion of concerted action, and for practical work. Others, again, strive to unite working men of various grades into associations help them with their advice and means, and enable them to obtain fitting and profitable employment. The bishops, on their part, bestow their ready goodwill and support, and with their approval and guidance, many members of the clergy, both secular and regular, labor assiduously in behalf of the spiritual and mental interests of the members of such associations. And there are not wanting Catholics blessed with affluence, who have, as it were, cast in their lot with the wage earners, and who have spent large sums in founding and widely spreading benefit and insurance societies, by means of which the working man may without difficulty acquire, through his labor, not only many present advantages, but also the certainty of honorable support in days to come. How greatly such manifold and earnest activity has benefited the community at large is too well known to require us to dwell upon it. We find therein grounds for most cheering hope in the future, provided always that the associations we have described 
continue to grow and spread, and are well and wisely administered. Let the state watch over these societies of citizens banded together for the exercise of their rights, but let it not thrust itself into their peculiar concerns and their organization, for things move and live by the spirit inspiring them, and may be killed by the rough grasp of a hand from without. In order, then, that an association may be carried on with unity of purpose and harmony of action, its organization and government should be firm and wise. All such societies, being free to exist, have the further right to adopt such rules and organization as may best conduce to the attainment of their respective objects. We do not judge it expedient to enter into minute particulars touching the subject of organization. This must depend on national character, on practice and experience, on the nature and aim of the work to be done, on the scope of the various trades and employments, and on other circumstances of fact and of time, all of which should be carefully considered. To sum up, then, we may lay it down as a general and lasting law that working men's associations should be so organized and governed as to furnish the best and most suitable means for attaining what is aimed at, that is to say, for helping each individual member to better his condition to the utmost in body, mind, and property. It is clear that they must pay special and chief attention to the duties of religion and morality, and that their internal discipline must be guided very strictly by these weighty considerations. Otherwise they would lose wholly their special character, and end by becoming little better than those societies which take no account whatever of religion. What advantage can it be to a working man to obtain by means of a society all that he requires, and to endanger his soul for lack of spiritual food? What doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world, and suffer the loss of his own soul? This, as our Lord teaches, is the mark or character that distinguishes the Christian from the heathen. After all these things do the heathen seek. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his justice, and all these things shall be added unto you. Let our associations, then, look first and before all things to God. Let religious instruction have therein the foremost place, each one being carefully taught what is his duty to God, what he has to believe, what to hope for, and how he is to work out his salvation. And let all be warned and strengthened with special care against wrong principles and false teaching. Let the working man be urged and led to the worship of God, to the earnest practice of religion, and, among other things, to the keeping holy of Sundays and holy days. Let him learn to reverence and love Holy Church, the common mother of us all, and hence to obey the precepts of the Church, and to frequent the sacraments, since they are the means ordained by God for obtaining forgiveness of sin and for leading a holy life. The foundations of the organization being thus laid in religion, we next proceed to make clear the relations of the members one to another, in order that they may live together in concord and go forward prosperously and with good results. The offices and charges of the society should be apportioned for the good of the society itself, and in such mode that difference in degree or standing should not interfere with unanimity and goodwill. Office bearers should be appointed with due prudence and discretion, and each one's charge should be carefully mapped out. Hereby no member will suffer injury. 
that the common funds be administered with strict honesty in such a way that a member may receive assistance in proportion to his necessities. The rights and duties of the employers, as compared with the rights and duties of the employed, ought to be the subject of careful consideration. Should it happen that either a master or a workman believe himself injured, nothing would be more desirable than that a committee should be appointed composed of reliable and capable members of the association, whose duty would be, conformably with the rules of the association, to settle the dispute. Among the several purposes of a society, one should be to try to arrange for a continuous supply of work at all times and seasons, as well as to create a fund out of which the members may be effectually helped in their needs, not only in cases of accident, but also in sickness, old age, and distress. Such rules and regulations, if willingly obeyed by all, will sufficiently ensure the well-being of the poor, whilst such mutual associations among Catholics are certain to be productive in no small degree of prosperity to the state. It is not rash to conjecture the future from the past. Age gives way to age, but the events of one century are wonderfully like those of another, for they are directed by the providence of God, who overrules the course of history in accordance with his purposes in creating the race of man. We are told that it was cast as a reproach on the Christians in the early ages of the church that the greater number among them had to live by begging or by labor. Yet, destitute though they were of wealth and influence, they ended by winning over to their side the favor of the rich and the goodwill of the powerful. They showed themselves industrious, hard-working, assiduous, and peaceful, ruled by justice and, above all, bound together in brotherly love. In presence of such mode of life and such example, prejudice gave way, the tongue of malevolence was silenced, and the lying legends of ancient superstition, little by little, yielded to Christian truth. At the time being, the condition of the working classes is the pressing question of the hour, and nothing can be of higher interest to all classes of the state than that it should be rightly and reasonably adjusted. But it will be easy for Christian working men to decide it aright if they will form associations, choose wise guides, and follow on the path with which so much advantage to themselves and the commonwealth was trodden by their fathers before them. Prejudice, it is true, is mighty, and so is the greed of money. But if the sense of what is just and rightful be not debased through depravity of heart, their fellow citizens are sure to be won over to a kindly feeling towards men whom they see to be in earnest as regards their work, and who prefer so unmistakably right dealing to mere lucre and the sacredness of duty to every other consideration. And further great advantage would result from the state of things we are describing. There would exist so much more ground for hope, and likelihood even, of recalling to a sense of their duty those working men who have either given up their faith altogether, or whose lives are at variance with its precepts. Such men feel in most cases that they have been fooled by empty promises and deceived by false pretexts. They cannot but perceive that their grasping employers too often treat them with great inhumanity and hardly care for them outside the profit their labor brings. And if they belong to any union, it is probably one in which there exists, instead of charity and love, that intestine strife which ever accompanies poverty when unresigned and unsustained by religion. Broken in spirit and worn down in body, 
how many of them would gladly free themselves from such galling bondage. But human respect, or the dread of starvation, makes them tremble to take the step. To such as these, Catholic associations are of incalculable service by helping them out of their difficulties, inviting them to companionship, and receiving the returning wanderers to a haven where they may securely find repose. We have now laid before you, venerable brethren, both who are the persons and what are the means whereby this most arduous question must be solved. Everyone should put his hand to the work which falls to his share, and that at once and straight away, lest the evil which is already so great become through delay absolutely beyond remedy. Those who rule the state should avail them of the laws and institutions of the country. Masters and wealthy owners must be mindful of their duty. The poor, whose interests are at stake, should make every lawful and proper effort, and since religion alone, as we said at the beginning, can avail to destroy the evil at its root, all men should rest persuaded that the main thing needful is to return to real Christianity, apart from which all the plans and devices of the wisest will prove of little avail. In regard to the Church, her cooperation will never be found lacking, be the time or the occasion what it may and she will intervene with all the greater effect in proportion, as her liberty of action is the more unfettered. Let this be carefully taken to heart by those whose office it is to safeguard the public welfare. Every minister of holy religion must bring to the struggle the full energy of his mind and all his power of endurance. Moved by your authority, venerable brethren, and quickened by your example, they should never cease to urge upon men of every class upon the high-placed as well as the lowly, the gospel doctrines of Christian life. By every means in their power, they must strive to secure the good of the people, and above all must earnestly cherish in themselves and try to arouse in others charity, the mistress and queen of virtues. For the happy results we all long for must be chiefly brought about by the plenteous outpouring of charity, of that true Christian charity which is the fulfilling of the whole gospel law which is always ready to sacrifice itself for others' sake, and is man's surest antidote against worldly pride and immoderate love of self, that charity whose office is described and whose godlike features are outlined by the Apostle St. Paul in these words, Charity is patient, is kind, seeketh not her own, suffereth all things, endureth all things. On each one of you, venerable brothers, and on your clergy and people, as an earnest of God's mercy and a mark of our affection, we, lovingly in the Lord, bestow the apostolic benediction. End of Encyclical Letter, Rerum Novarum, on Capital and Labor, Part 2, by Pope Leo XIII, read by J. Bev.